What is up, good people? You emailed us, you asked for it. So today we are talking about Bill Cosby's great prison escape and how we can understand justice in more expansive terms. But to get started, you know we gotta offer a few church announcements. As always, you can email holyshit at theolapmedia.com if you have questions or comments. There's a lot to cover today, and we're excited to share. So let's get right into it. Why is this in red? It was an accident. Jesus. He thinks he's the Messiah. That's what it is. Everything he writes for himself is in red. <laughs> Y'all childish. <laughs> we're a red letter podcast. Wait, this isn't a real script. What is this? Nothing. It is absolutely nothing. It's an outline. You pushed our time back to do this shit? <laughs> so, so, Sam, my question for you is, how is this not something you have noticed before? Uh, usually there's more. Usually he writes some stuff for us in there throughout, but he literally just, this is horrible. He never, like every once in a blue moon is there stuff written for us. There's something in the postlude. Katie, I'm tired of him. Shit. Join the club. You know, you, these hoes ain't loyal. What is up, good people? Welcome back to the Church of Holy Shit in the Temple for all the saints and the ain'ts. I am the Holy Mother. Shut your mouth. The one, the only, Brandon T. Maxwell, High Priest and Prophet Supreme of the Church of Holy Shit. No, sir. If you send me $5, I will send you a personal prayer cloth drenched no. in my sanctified sweat. Ale? Mm. I'm disgusted. Hallelujah. I'd, I can assure you, you do not want his sweat. But you could go to patreon.com. Isn't that how we're supposed to have people give us stuff? They don't even have to deal with your s- smelly sweat. Wow. That's one of the giving levels. If you give on Patreon, you can get my sweaty cloth. I'm going to start calling you Creflo Dollar. <laughs> Pastor Dollar. Pastor <laughs> Dollar. Are we, we going to have our own plane? Oh, well, Brandon is. I, I'm actually a million dollar. My name is Million Dollar. Mm-hmm. Oh, Creflo Million Dollar. <laughs> no, just Million Dollar. <laughs> wow. Uh, Oh, and I'm Katie Ricks, the Senior Spiritual Director of the Church of Holy Shit. I will not be sending anyone a sweaty prayer cloth, no matter how much money you send me. (laughs) But how are you going to be the Senior Spiritual Director and you hate spiritual shit? I like spiritual shit. I hate the church. That's where I went. Mm, Oh, we'll get into that later. She already, she's triggered. Well... (laughs) I'm Pastor Sam White, the H-N-I-C. That's head ninja in charge. Um, I had to say pastor because um, Katie hates the church, so she hates me. It's okay. She doesn't hate you because you're a pastor. It's because you're Yes, she does. Oh. (laughs) But I'm also a reverend, so me like— I thought she was going to say she's also black. (laughs) (laughs) You are not one with the church, Sam. I love you. Aw. Love you too, Katie. Brandon, maybe. Yeah, it's up in the air. You know what, ho? Mm. I don't need y'all. So the outside opened back up, and then the people started to act hmm. up. So we've got a lot of church announcements that we need to cover today. So let's get right into it so you can govern yourselves accordingly. For our first announcement, we are sad to report that the Church of Holy Shit cannot fellowship with the Temple of TikTok this year. As you will recall, on many occasions, we have fellowshiped with the Temple of TikTok, and their dance ministry has provided for us the ministry of liturgical dance. 
However, we have just learned that the dance ministry's leaders have gone on strike. They're tired of the first lady, the first gentleman, or the first demoman taking their dances and claiming them as their own without citing their sources. So we will not be able to fellowship with the TikTok temple on this year. In real life, Black women are going on strike. Have y'all heard about this? There are several Black women who have created dances to some of the like common songs right now. The common song that doesn't have a dance is Megan the Stallion's Thought Shit. And they just said, we're not going to do it anymore. We refuse to make dances because we create the dances. White TikTok creators claim those dances as their own. They don't cite their source. And then they get ad revenue and money based on what they're doing while also not citing the Black creators who gave them the dance in the first place. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. You're telling me that white people are stealing mm-hmm. things from Black people and getting rich off of it. Shocking. That's the news. This has never happened in the history. This is crazy. In the history of the country. I have a friend that says white gone white. Like stuff like this, it doesn't, it doesn't shock me at all because this is like par for the course for white folks. No offense, Katie, if that offends um, any any of your sensibilities or whiteness. My sensibilities are not offended. I mean, Katie, you know how white folks are. White gone white. Like that's what white folks do. I think what I love about this is the fact that Yes, white's gone white, but I, I like it when black people try to find ways, creative ways to clap back. Yeah. There's um, a lot of issues on TikTok as it relates to black creators. Anybody who uses certain buzzwords or anybody who gets to a place where they're talking too explicitly about race or using certain terminology, their videos will be muted and or removed. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of history with like black folks being shadow banned on TikTok and their content not making it into people's timelines. And so this is just yet another sort of way that black people are clapping back. I first became aware of the band because there were some white women who clearly can't listen to instructions. Like it says, hands on my knees. <laughs> and their hands were in the air, weren't they? Waving them like they just did not care. And I'm like, why are your hands in the air? Like that's the wrong song, the wrong dance. And then there was like some little white girl in a green t-shirt. And she was trying to back it up. And I was like, what is she backing? There's nothing back there. And, there and and why is she mad at the camera? So like, I was like, why are white people doing this to this song? And I was like, oh, black people are not giving them content to steal. This gives me so much more understanding about what's going on on TikTok. I mean, my daughter would show me these dance, like this whole idea of just doing the same dance over and over again, and then people are getting paid for it. I didn't understand anything about it. But now this like shows even more the foundation of all of this is uh, stealing from Black women. Yes. Do you have a TikTok video, Katie? I think you should make a TikTok video. You should create the dance. Not to steal or to get paid, but just so that we can laugh. Yeah, I, I refuse. My daughter has tried. Do you to, dance like you sing? Yes, which is why I don't do either one of them. And so, no, <laughs> I will not be doing that. My daughter has tried to get me to do that. She says people do this with their parents and everything. And so, no, I will not do that. Jordan, if you're listening, don't give up. Keep pushing it until you can get at least one minute of Katie on video doing some type of dance. We will pay you. We will pay you, Jordan, if you can make that happen. Wait a minute. How much? <laughs> I can be bought, but I don't think you can pay for what I can be bought for. <laughs> That's all to say, like, this is not about Katie Ricks dancing on TikTok. This is about an entire cultural phenomenon that has come about because Black folks, especially Black women, have designed these dances and then mm-hmm. everything has taken off when teenagers and 20-something-year-old white kids are sitting there doing it and they have merch and making thousands and millions of dollars off of it. 
Related to white people stealing things, British-born white influencer Ali London has recently undergone surgery to ensure that their outsides match their insides. And I'm not talking about their uh, gender identity. I'm talking about the fact that transracial identity is apparently making a comeback. Ali, who was born white, British, white, white, like whitey white, has surgery to make their eyes look Korean. And I'm saying that with air quotes. But literally, they said that they transitioned cultures and races after the surgery to resemble a K-pop idol, Jimin of BTS. So, hmm, wow. I have no words. <laughs> I have been trying to have words since I saw this this article. I simply... I, so if people tell me I have Asian eyes, am I biracial? Because people tell me I have... Did you have surgery to get that way? No, I was born this way. You on the right track, baby. You was born this way. You got it from your mama. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't be biracial. You would be transracial if you tried to embrace that identity. <laughs> this just takes whiteness to a totally different level. I mean, I, I really... Um, I, yes, I don't have words. I want to have words. But you cannot look like me and be Korean or black or uh, Latinx. You cannot change cultures. Clearly someone has a different opinion. I mean, Rachel Dolezal tried to do it. Yeah, but that was wrong too. I was going to bring up Rachel Dolezal. Yeah. Yeah. You should. Rachel Dolezal is the one that made this popular recently. She headed the NAACP uh, uh, somewhere. <laughs> Bruh, she had like box braids yeah. in her hair at one point. Like, I'm she telling did. you. Indeed. Was like the whole spokesperson for an entire year before somebody was like, hey, y'all know she white, right? <laughs> But Rachel Dolezal <laughs> is also not the only one. Corla Pandit is a black man who posed as an Indian from New Delhi his entire life. Martina Big was on Maury in 2017, had tanning injections administered by a physician to darken her skin and her hair. This is a whole vibe. Michael Jackson used to undergo skin lightening treatments to make sure that he could be white. You know Michael Jackson had vitiligo. <laughs> he did not have no vitiligo. <laughs> He did not have no vitiligo. <laughs> re, was it re-vitiligo? <laughs> <laughs> I think that at the core, racial identity is a social construct. First and foremost, let us say that. Racial identity is not a real category. It was a category created just for the sake of oppressing right. people. Now, that's... Oftentimes what the woke white people say when they've taken one class about critical race theory in their undergraduate institution, and I like to say in response to those individuals, like, yes, and it is a constructed reality that has constructed outcomes. It has real tangible outcomes in the ways that our world moves and shakes and who lives and who dies, to be quite yeah. frank. And so at the end of the day, even though it's a social construct, it's real and it has real implications in our lives. And so for individuals who are trying to change their race, I have a lot of questions. I tend to sit on the side of the table that says, no, you can't change your racial identity, especially if you're white. You can't just pick up whatever race you want to be and then claim the plight of those communities or claim to be solid with those communities and the struggle for justice. At the end of the day, there are other ways for you to be solid with black folks and Korean folks or whoever you're trying to be solid with in their struggles and in their joys and celebrations. So, Ali, you went left with this one and we don't need you to do that again. Last but certainly not least, I think it's time for us to wear masks again. When did we stop wearing masks? You, you clearly ain't been outside. Everybody has been not wearing masks, like, everywhere. I thought we were talking about weed. Oh, I haven't been wearing masks. I'm trying to tell you, when I go outside... 
No, Brandon ain't been wearing masks. I haven't. I like to breathe. He feels like he's vaccinated and protects him from everything, so he don't wear masks no more. Science tells me that I have immunity and that the shots are working and that they're working even longer than they thought and that I don't even need a booster shot yet and that if I'm vaccinated, I do not have to wear a mask. However, there is new concern that the Delta variant is spreading in a way that prompts reconsideration of, of a lot of these precautions. Many countries wherein the Delta variant is on the rise are reinforcing mask requirements. Even in the United States, folks in Los Angeles County um, have warned that immunized people should continue wearing masks indoors because we still aren't out of this yet. So it feels like it's the best of times and the worst of times because we're hearing all this data about outside opening back up and movies having record numbers, you know, having having all this income coming because of the People who are going to sit in movie theaters, which I am not doing yet and probably won't do for quite some time. But we also have people who are being drastically impacted by the Delta variant, not just in the United States, but primarily around the world, but also in the United States. I think that as long as these variants are happening, as long as we haven't reached that 70%, then the variants are going to keep happening. The virus itself, science, is going to keep mutating. I do think it's important for us to open up. I do think it's fine to not wear masks outside. But I do also think that I wear masks for the sake of other people like who can't get vaccinated. Because even if you're vaccinated like I am, you can still carry stuff. But the science says... That if you're vaccinated, you have like virtually no chance of transmitting the virus to someone else. Well, I was reading something today that said something different. I thought it was in this article. I think that's the thing is that the science keeps changing. For me, that's the whole thing about it. I don't mind wearing a mask when I go inside to a grocery store or something like that. If I go to a friend's house, I, I take my mask off because I know who they are and, and everything. But if I'm in a public place, I don't need other people to do that. But I do think that the science keeps changing so rapidly and has for the past 15 months that it's worth doing that. First of all, Katie, you don't go to grocery stores and you have no friends. <laughs> Secondly... I do go to grocery stores. I have no friends. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you said something about the science keeps changing, or I'll say evolving, as we continue to research and learn more about this. And I think that's one of the things that worries me, because I think at some point we're going to come across a situation where there is a variant or there is a mutation of this virus that the vaccines aren't really handling. I don't know that that's going to happen for sure, but that's a worry. Like, will that happen? And if that does happen, are people going to be so casual about it because they think because they're vaccinated, they're good. And I know that this was what Operation Warp Speed, Donald Trump takes credit for the vaccines. And I know that they were produced rather quickly to address this pandemic. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the science. What I'm saying is as the virus itself continues to mutate and change, will the will the vaccine be able to keep up with those changes um, as is? So I think the key is the science isn't changing. The virus is changing. So your point, yeah. Sam, when the virus mutates, we have to look once again and see what science is saying and see what the best advice is. Yeah. I think right now the jury may be out on what the best next step is. But alongside the data that says the Delta variant is spreading, there's also data that says those who have been vaccinated continue to have immunity from this disease. Katie, to your point, yes, there are people who have transmitted the Delta variant of this virus who are also vaccinated. So I think that the reality is we probably still need to be wearing masks for the foreseeable future because after Delta comes Epsilon, after Epsilon comes Zeta, 
After Zeta comes Eta, Theta, Iota, Kappa, Lambda, Mu, Nu, Xi, Omicron, Pi, Rho, Sigma, Tau, Upsilon, Phi. Do you want a, a reward for knowing the Greek alphabet or something? Dude is reading that off of the screen. We're used to it. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't mean to sound like a right-wing conspiracy theorist when I said the science is changing. I, the precise language would be evolving and the understanding is evolving. My point is that there have been rapid changes or evolutions over the course of time. The key is we're not out of this thing yet, y'all. That is the word to continue to remember. We are not out of this yet. We will be enduring this for the foreseeable future as the virus mutates and the science progresses. So the last announcement is a prayer request. Sam, you were just texting the other day about Miami-Dade and the building that collapsed there, leaving multiple people dead and still leaving like over 100 people unaccounted for. Sam, you want to say more? I think I was at the gym when this happened and news started breaking of this. And I was watching like the videos that had been captured of this building actually collapsing and falling. This is crazy that this high rise luxury condo in Miami-Dade County in Florida literally just collapsed. I mean, it wasn't a it wasn't a vacant building. It wasn't, you know, an uninhabited structure. It was a building where that was full of occupants and residents. Many of them had completely Complained over the years, there are records of inspection reports that say, um, you know, the foundation has been compromised. There's sprawling in the concrete. There's cracking. This stuff has to be addressed as recent as this past April. And so this is just this is just crazy. And, and what's really crazy is that I think after about six or seven days into the search efforts, they they were still missing 149 people unaccounted for. Yeah. And so my heart and my thoughts and my prayers go out to all of those affected, to the families connected to people in this building. I feel like this is going to have a very bad ending and it, it, I don't know what to say. Yeah, I can't imagine being the family members, right, of of those waiting right now. I mean, the pictures are devastating. And so, like, even finding their loved ones is is at least some closure. Um, but that's, that doesn't exist for folks. So I feel sadness for the people who are involved here, for the people who are waiting, for the people who are grieving loss of loved ones. And I'm frustrated and angry about the fact that nobody took action on these complaints and these problems that is not unique to this particular condominium. This is a situation that happens with landlords across the country. And and that's a, a symptom of an incredibly bad system. Absolutely. Our prayers go out to everyone in Miami-Dade and around the world who has friends, family, or loved ones who have been impacted directly by this. And we also say very clearly and strongly in Florida, in Georgia, and in Tennessee, if there are predatory housing practices that put people in conditions and there are laws that are in place that prevent the authorities from holding people accountable in these instances, those things need to be addressed and they need to be fixed immediately. I'm assuming that in the future we will find out that socioeconomic status played a role in this. Race played a role in this. And we're not asking those questions yet and we don't want to ask those today because we want to be sensitive to the subject matter and those who are living through this right now. But our prayers are with you. We stand with you and we continue to have courage that those who are missing will be found. All right, with that, let's take a quick break before we jump into today's Word of Pod for the People of Pod that is all about everybody's least favorite dirty uncle, William Henry Cosby Jr. We'll be right back after this. I sent you all a link. Ikea has unveiled an LGBTQ couch. No, that was last month. That was Pride Month. You missed it. You, you late. 
I know, but I wish they had have had this out like then because they got a gay couch. It's like a bisexual couch. It's it's interesting. That couch is a mess. This is hideous. <laughs> it's growing something. Why is IKEA like this? <laughs> no one told them to do this. So I have no plan for this conversation, y'all. I'm, we're just going to have it how it comes up. I mean, I don't think that we're going to have disagreements, Katie. I think that it's just going to be a... Oh, we're going to have some disagreements. Oh, I'm ready. So let's get into it. We are here today, this week, to talk about um, what everyone was talking about for the latter half of last week. And that is none other than Heathcliff Huxtable or Bill Cosby. By way of background, I just want to set the stage because a lot is happening here. Some of you have written in to say that you would like us to disagree more. Katie was very surprised by that because she thought that we disagreed all the time. And I say, no, you edit those portions of the episodes out so people don't. That is not true. I have not done that in this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Background information. In 2003, Bill Cosby met a woman named Andrea Costant, who was the director of operations for the Temple University women's basketball program. Bill Cosby is a longtime supporter of Temple University sports program. So Bill and Andrea became friends. Over a 16-month period, the two would occasionally have dinner, go to small parties, and meetups. So in 2015, Bill Cosby was brought up on criminal charges for the sexual assault of Andrea Costin, who testified during the 2017 and 2018 trial that in January of 2004, she went to Bill Cosby's Elkins Park home to talk about her career goals. On this same night, Bill Cosby allegedly offered Costin three blue pills. Costin asked if the pills were some sort of supplement because they had previously been talking about herbal supplements. Costin testified that Bill nodded. We won't discuss that in graphic detail right now because we don't want anyone to be triggered. But last week, news broke that after spending nearly three years in prison, Bill Cosby was being released and his conviction overturned. Here's why. The Montgomery County District Attorney, or the DA, in place at the time, Bruce Castor, declined to charge Bill Cosby criminally if Bill Cosby was willing to give a deposition during the 2014 civil case. In 2017, Bruce Castor's successor, Risa Furman, brought Bill Cosby up on criminal charges in spite of the actions of her predecessor. So the argument of Bill Cosby's attorneys at that time was the case had to be thrown out because Bill Cosby had already made an agreement with the prior DA, which the judge disregarded during the 2017 and 18 trial. Last week, the case was thrown out on those same grounds. By the state Supreme Court. By the state Supreme Court. So that's where we are. Bill Cosby's free. And Katie is pissed beyond measure. Yeah, she's shaking her head. I'm looking at her right now. I'm like, whoa. She mad. She big mad, y'all. Whoa, buddy. Ooh. The reality is this doesn't take away the fact that over 50 women have come forward saying that he has assaulted them or drugged them and or all kinds of other things, period. And men are traditionally, and I imagine some women, never held accountable for sexual assault. And this is yet another time where that's going to happen. I agree with everything you just said, Katie. When the criminal case first started and Bill Cosby's deposition was like unsealed or made public, I was like, whoa, like this dude is admitting in a previous deposition 
that he gave women preludes. And it was it was interesting because some of my female friends was actually defending Bill. Like Felicia Rashad. You're right, Brandon, uh, to interject Felicia there because in the beginning of the criminal case, she made an initial statement about something along the lines of these silly women or something, something along those lines. And then it, she kind of went radio silence after the backlash from that. And then um, like the day that it was announced that Bill was being released, she also made a statement saying like, Finally, this miscarriage of justice has been corrected. Which was a factual statement. Which was a factual statement. That's what get into because there's layers to this, right? And when all of those many women who came forward in the criminal case, I was like, mm-mm, Bill guilty. Guilty. I was like, it ain't this many people conspiring have gotten together to put together a false narrative about you, you did this. Yes. Right? Correct. And I, and I believe that with my whole being, and I still do. Ashe. However. Comma. What I did not know when I was reading that deposition and I was saying, what? This dude admitted that he did this. And I think some of the language that we use is important, Brandon. You said the prosecutor declined to pursue a criminal case against him what it sounds like in this particular decision is that he didn't just decline to pursue a criminal case. He made an oral agreement with Bill. I don't know how factual this is. That if you incriminate yourself in the civil proceedings, we won't pursue a criminal case against you. Which is basically him saying, if you give up your right against self-incrimination, which is our right, our constitutional right, then in exchange for that, we won't go after you criminally. And no matter what I believe about how guilty he was and how these women did not conspire against him, that part of the law just can't be dismissed, right? You can't just say, oh, it's okay for the prosecution to, to make that promise. And then be like, nope, or some other prosecutor come on and be like, I ain't make that promise with your ass. You're going to jail. I can't get on board with that. I can't. I cannot. So a couple of things really quickly. The former DA, Bruce Castor, is speaking out. He's issued a statement, and I want to read a quote from it. It's a little bit lengthy, but I think it's important. It reads, I made the correct decisions at the time, and they still hold up today. Once I decided that there wasn't enough evidence that I thought the case could produce a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt, I had two choices. I could do nothing and hope it got better, or I could set the pieces up so that civil lawyers who knew what they were doing would know how to achieve a victory in civil court that would punish Cosby, end quote. So I don't know if it was a deal that he was cutting with Bill, Sam, or if it's more like what he said in this statement. Perhaps more than anything, he was trying to prevent Bill Cosby from invoking the Fifth Amendment within a civil court proceeding, which is the constitutional right to which I think you're referring. So all of that is to say that in the 2006 deposition concerning this matter, Bill Cosby did not invoke the Fifth Amendment, and he testified that, yes, he had given women, that's plural, women, drugs in sexual encounters. The civil case was settled for $3.38 million. So, yes, he's guilty as a mofo. By his own admission, he's guilty. He's a rapist. I'm not trying to change that. I am merely noting that people was going in on Felicia Rashad when that tweet was factual. Now, it lacked nuance. You don't want your dean of your arts and science program tweeting that. 
And Felicia's been out here caping for Bill a real long time in a way that does make me look at her sideways. But on the surface, that tweet that y'all mad about, it was factual. Well, we don't know what she was saying. So we actually can't make a statement about that. If she was making the statement that the women, that that wasn't true, then that's one thing. If she's making a statement about legal maneuverings that happen, then that is a true tweet. It is true that we need to have policies, procedures, laws in place that protect people who have been accused of something. We, that is true across the board. And so somebody said he wasn't going to prosecute Bill Cosby if he incriminated himself. You're right. That is the law of the land. What I'm mad about is, A, the law of the land isn't applied universally. Rich folks get away with it more. White folks get away with it more. And almost every man who rapes, assaults, or molests someone gets away with it. And that's on Mirror Head a little lamb. But I just want to reiterate, Bill didn't get away with it. They tried to punish his black ass twice while the 45th president of the United States was still grabbing women by the pussy. And Aziz Ansari was producing the next season of Master of None. And Matt Lahr was trying to reboot his career. There is a discrepancy here along the lines of race. Let's be clear. This process did not fail because he was actually found guilty for these charges. Um, he actually went to jail and was serving and has served three years of a 10-year sentence. And so the challenge is, and I hear a lot of people saying, oh, you know, certain people, I agree, certain people are never held accountable. The challenge in this case is not just that people didn't believe the women that uh, accused him. That's not what happened. They actually did. He was actually found guilty. He actually went to prison. And we're now saying because of this technicality, somehow, you know, it's because of Bill's power. It's because of his privilege or his money. That Negro was in jail. He was locked up. He was in jail. And if, if we're not for this technicality, his ass would still be in jail. They let him out. And so for me, it's like, you know, I have nothing for Bill after all of this happened. And I do believe the women like I have nothing for Bill. Period. But I have to be able to have that position, but also have the position based on the law that these prosecutors fucked up. Let me say just like Sam, I believe the women. I believe Bill did this. I believe that it is crystal clear that he did this. I also believe that Bill was held accountable for that action. And then I think this is where Felicia Rashad's tweet comes back in. To quote her tweet, it said, Finally, a terrible wrong is being righted. A miscarriage of justice is corrected. Because this doesn't exonerate him. It doesn't. This doesn't say he was innocent, right? This doesn't pronounce innocence. And so if this was a verdict that says actually you know, we don't believe Bill did what he was accused of and she made that statement. That would be one thing because it would be basically her affirming that. This basically is her, it sounds like it's her affirming what the Supreme Court said, which is you had no business bringing these criminal proceedings. So I don't think we're going to have a fight about it because we all agree. I want to fight. So I need you to disagree. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, what I want to fight is the system that allows men to get away with this shit and regardless of it, have three to 10 year sentences for something that affects women for years and years and years and generations and generations and generations. So where should that anger be placed? Well, it's not at each other. We're not angry at each other. Right, I know, but that's what Brandon was wanting. No, he wasn't <laughs> wanting that. 
Brandon, what are you reading? You're preoccupied with something else. I'm just reading some of the tweets that have come out since this has been announced. So like Mark Lamont Hill tweeted, Bill Cosby is not innocent. He has not been exonerated. That was in all caps. Followed up with, his release means that Cosby, a sexual predator, was incarcerated within a criminal legal system that has as little regard for its own rules and procedures as Cosby does for his victims. So like that's the most precise statement that I think anyone can make. And that, that, that's what Felicia should have tweeted. Yeah, that is exactly it. One thing, though, about the Me Too movement, the reality is that every single article I've seen says he was the first big time person to be charged or convicted in the Me Too movement time. <laughs> I'm intrigued by that being the context, right? I think that that dismisses the Me Too movement. I think now the place that I'm sitting here is like, let's ask the critical question, what do we do with the frustration that the same system that allows men to rape women, to harm women and go free, is the same system that would allow a black man to endure an unlawful process for the sake of giving somebody a win. I do believe that the Me Too movement was gaining such traction that it was shaking the very foundations of the patriarchal country in which we live. And when that happens, just like Derek Chauvin, you got to throw somebody out to the wolves. Let's throw the black man out. Like, don't be mad at Bill Cosby. What do you mean? Don't be, don't be mad at Bill Cosby because he was released. You're saying not because he actually did it. Right. Be, be mad at him because he did it. But don't be mad at him because he was released. That's not on him. Okay, okay. Let's talk about the system that allows all of this stuff to continue. But as Katie said before, you can even be mad that he was only given 10 years. Yes. You can be mad because I was mad at that. I was mad at the Stanford swimmer who it was drunk and raped a, a, a college classmate. And the, the male judge said he didn't want to ruin his life. And so he got a slap on the wrist. Now that judge was recalled. I think those are some of the things that have to happen. We have to recall judges. We have to advocate for stronger legislation that punishes offenders much more harshly. Right. So Brock Turner was the person from Stanford who was given a six-month sentence for just this horrendous, horrendous rape and and then was let off because they didn't want his life to be messed up. And of course, he's a young white guy. And so there is there is the reality that the discrimination, which is such an insignificant word for, for the intensity that it is in the justice system, lets white guys off and goes after Bill Cosby because it's a good story, right? If you can get Bill Cosby in jail. So I get it. But my frustration last week when I heard it was, I am pissed as hell, but more about the implications for women and men who have been assaulted. Very few people are held accountable. I realize he was in jail for three weeks, three years. That's significant. It is. But it's not as significant as 60 people who have done that. I mean, I know of a case where there was someone who molested their sister for years, then molested their children, was accused finally of molesting the child, was sentenced to 75 years, but only had to spend 10 in there. Again, 10 is a long time, but it's not a long time for the years and years and generations and generations of trauma that that elicits. That is the focus of my anger. The justice system that doesn't hold people accountable and doesn't hold people accountable fairly and this culture of rape that exists and is pervasive in everywhere we turn around. And so that's where my anger is. And part of it, I mean, honestly, is that I have a 14-year-old daughter who I have to now <laughs> send out into the world and hope to God that someone doesn't hurt her. And I want you to stay mad. I am mad with you. 
But I think my hope is that we can get to the place where we can affirm what my grandmother used to say all the time and what many black grandmothers have said throughout time is two wrongs don't make a right. We can't get justice via injustice. So I'm with Brandon on this because Bill is guilty as hell. I believe he's guilty as hell. But there's been too much history of folks using these laws any kind of way that they want with disregard to people's actual rights as it relates to these laws and putting them in prison based on that. That's why I'm like, they messed up. And because they messed up, Bill walks free and unfortunately cannot be prosecuted again for this. So I think that's a really good spot for a break. Katie and Sam, y'all's last two comments dovetail nicely with the second half of the conversation. Because I think that it's necessary to pivot and ask a few questions. Like we have to ask, when we say justice, what do we mean by that? Can justice as a concept stand on its own? Or does it always require an adjective to clarify it? An adjectival qualifier, if you will. What is the function of the rhetoric of justice in our society? And what does America believe justice is? And what do the structures of our communities suggest about what we believe when we say justice? But before we get into that, let's just take a quick breather and pause for a quick word from Theolab Media. Hi, I'm Lisa Weaver, the host of Theolab Media's new podcast, Healing Jephthah's Daughters, a podcast for all women and all girls who live with the trauma from their relationships with their fathers. On this podcast, we'll use family systems theory, biblical criticism, and storytelling to identify liberative practices that lead to our freedom, healing, and wholeness. Join me each Wednesday for conversations with friends, colleagues, biblical scholars, and mental health practitioners who will accompany us on the journey. Healing Jephthah's Daughters is available on all platforms. Subscribe via your favorite podcast app today. And as always, my prayer for you is freedom, healing, and wholeness. So let's dive right back into the discussion and pick up where we left off. I think the presenting question for this final segment is, what is justice or what is accountability? And how do we begin the work of imagining otherwise? What will it take for us to move beyond an eye for an eye type of justice? How can we get people to understand that years of research would suggest Killing the person who killed your loved one won't make it better. I mean, the latest episode of Healing Jephthah's Daughters podcast wrestles with this very topic. I mean, until that end, I think that we can even wrestle with this question, at least for a moment, independent of the Bill Cosby case. Because it's happening in our churches. It's happening in our schools. It's happening in our businesses every single day. How do we hold CEOs accountable or executive directors or pastors? What is the model of justice that we're seeking? So, first of all, it's an incredibly rare thing that a pastor is held accountable for, um, for assault or abuse, period. They're passed from presbytery to presbytery. I know of so few people who are, as you said, blacklisted from being allowed to be in the ministry, period. It's a difficult question to ask how to hold someone accountable because sending someone to jail doesn't make the trauma go away for the person who encountered it. So I don't have answers for that. But what I know is that the trauma lasts forever. It impacts friends. It impacts family. It impacts children. 
It impacts grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and beyond and beyond. And it's likely true that the person who has committed the assault, it affects their children and their grandchildren and their grandchildren. You know, that is true. So in our society that has this justice and penal system that, you know, doesn't work, that's the only thing we have right now. But there's no accountability that makes up for that. Katie, when you were speaking earlier, you were talking about like the, the, the length of the sentence. And I started to wonder, what is the goal that we want for our justice system? Do we want it to be punitive or do we want it to be restorative? And sometimes we fall on different sides of that line depending on what the person has done. And sometimes I wrestle with some of these things and I've read about or been exposed to a case and I've said, you know, what if this was my mother? What if this victim was my sister or my family member? What if it was my dad who was shot? And how would I feel about this? I especially wrestle with this when I want retribution, when I want vengeance, when I want people to pay. And I start having to reconcile, like, how does that pair with this idea that people can be restored? I want to talk about Kelly Gissendanner. And I bring up Kelly Gissendanner because... When I read about her case, she did what she was accused of doing. The issue was that she was not the same person, that 28-year-old, who orchestrated her husband's murder at the time of her execution. That she, that, the, that this, this system... This, this place that she was in for those many years, whether it was in prison or whether it was her experience with the theology program that she was a participant of, it had sparked a tremendous change in her. She was not that same person. And so how do we put someone to death who is not now who we say they are, that we're protecting society from this person and all of those things? And so the question then becomes for me, what's the goal of this system? Is it because if, if it is for vengeance, then I'm standing on on one side of the line saying she must be executed because of what she did, the pain she caused, the hurt that has happened can never be erased. Put her to death. But then for me, if if that's not the goal, if the goal is some some semblance of restoration or restoring or repairing or transforming a person, there's no way that you can put someone like Kelly Gissendana to death. Absolutely no way. And so I think these questions have to come in, they come into play for me when we even talk about like, do you sentence somebody to 200 years in prison or to death or to all of these things? What is the goal of those sentences? Are we out for vengeance or is there some hope that somehow there's transformation that happens that allows this person at some point to be integrated back into a society and it still doesn't do anything for the trauma? that someone may experience who is a victim of a person's actions. I think that's a, that's a different level of work that also has to take place. We learn what that looks like in Rwanda after genocide and in different places, but that's a different level of work that has to take place. I agree with you completely. When I was in college, way back when, one of the books I wrote was, the or I didn't write it, that would not have been the case, but one of the books I read was The Rich Get Richer and the Poor Get Prison. Those are the folks who are going to jail. And everybody else is getting off. Well, and that's the thing there. So, Katie, you've mentioned the justice system a few times today. And I think the reality for me is that I've come to realize that justice always requires an adjectival qualifier. And what we have in America is American justice. 
And what we have to start asking is what does that adjective American do to the word justice? What is the form of justice when American is the adjectival qualifier? And we also have other forms of justice toward which we could be working. We have distributive justice, which is a question of economic justice. What does it look like for us to give all members of society a fair share of the benefits and the resources that are available to us? We have procedural justice, which is concerned with making and implementing decisions according to fairness, fair processes that ensure everybody in the process is treated fairly. Now, the one that's linked most closely to American justice is retributive justice. Retributive justice is a retroactive approach to justice. It attempts to make right the things that happened in the past by administering a punishment in the present. But the reason that I say American justice is distinct from and different from retributive justice is because American justice is highly racialized. It's highly gendered. And so we actually treat people differently within that system. And retribution doesn't look the same if you're a white person versus a black person. It's layered. And sometimes there are two or three different qualifiers that are necessary. So maybe it's the retributive American justice system. But I think the thing that I've heard many Christian people, many religious folks talk about the need for is restorative justice, which is solely concerned with, as you noted, Sam, healing wounds, restoring offenders, repairing harm, repairing interpersonal relationships. I think the truest example, the most complete example that we've seen of this in modern world history is the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that happened in South Africa shortly after the apartheid occurred. But I would still say that that fell short. It fell short. It had restoration as the goal. No, I think the process... I, I totally disagree. It fell way short. But I don't see a disagreement. I'm saying that it definitely fell short. I'm just <laughs> saying, like, it seems like that's the greatest example that we have in terms of, like, the cultural awareness about models of justice beyond retribution. But if you got a different perspective, that's cool. I'm just trying to think about things about which people are aware. Like, what's another example? I, I, I guess I wouldn't even say that that was the, that was the you said that's the, the biggest example. I wouldn't even say that. I, I, I really think um, uh, some of the, the work after the Rwandan genocide and the ways, so, so for, for, for me, the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions in South Africa really was people just confessing, saying, yeah, I did this with no action behind it. In Rwanda, people, some of those offenders had to build houses for the families of victims. They had to, like, they, they, and they, they had to engage in a certain action. And part of it was because the, the criminal justice system was so burdened that they had to release these people. They could not keep them in prison. And so they said, if we release you, this is one of the things that you have to do in addition to making amends with the families that you have hurt. You've got to build the houses for every family that has been affected by your crimes. Like there was, there was these additional steps. And so that's the only point that I disagree with you on about South Africa versus like Rwanda. I think I actually agree with your point there. It's a point well taken because I'll often say that it fell short. Like it didn't actually achieve the goal. If you go to South Africa today, there's still so many vestiges of apartheid in that country. Today, they're about to explode right now because they haven't dealt with it. Like because the TRCs were, were crap. Because I mean, literally you had the, the perpetrator and the victim sitting there in front of one another and the perpetrator was required to confess what they did, and the victim was required to say either I forgive you or I don't or move on. But it was, it was literally confessional, and I could follow a big, long rabbit trail about why the Christian practice of confession is very limiting, because if you're only required to confess and never to act, 
The action is always God's. It's always God's action to restore. It's always God's action to do justice. And you have no responsibility as a human, then yeah, you're going to fall short just like the TRC. I took a class at my undergraduate institution called Restorative Justice, where we actually went inside of a minimum security prison facility and took classes alongside those who were incarcerated. And that was one of the most transformative experiences that I've ever had in my life. While we were in the course, we read a story about a woman whose son was murdered. When it came time for the person who murdered her son to be sentenced, she explicitly said that she did not want the person who murdered her son to be executed. And I'm going to ask for forgiveness because I am going to try to be deliberate about using the language, the person who murdered her son. Because so many times our so-called justice system invites us to call the person a murderer. And I try to remind myself that my language has power. And if I choose to call someone a murderer, I am making a judgment on that person as opposed to naming the action that caused the offense, the trauma, or the hurt. So instead of the person who murdered her son being sentenced to be executed, she wanted that person to be required to eat a meal with her every day for a specified time period. For whatever reason, the judge granted this and the mother did have lunch or dinner or a meal with this person who murdered her child every single day. And reading the story, it seemed to suggest that something transformative happened in that interaction. Both the victim and the perpetrator, both the mother and the person who committed the murder had to come together and be transformed by sitting together. And I'm not attempting to provide some sort of rosy view, rose-colored view of justice. That's not, I don't believe in that. Justice takes work. So I'm not suggesting that we need to require those who were raped by Bill Cosby to sit down at a table with him. I don't want to subject those who have been harmed to that. But I am asking, what's the model of justice that allows all of us to imagine transformation as opposed to vengeance? What's the model of justice that takes mental health seriously? That takes communal well-being seriously? I mean, it's a trite phrase at this juncture, but an eye for an eye makes the entire world blind. Correct. I was, and I was going to highlight um, one particular story after the genocide in Rwanda that they followed was uh, a lady whose family had been murdered. And one of the gentlemen who participated in that genocide, who had been working building these houses in the communities and was sitting down with this, with this woman, and she was saying, I, I know you're here and I see you and I see the work that you're doing and you may be genuine, but I'm not ready to forgive you. Mm. And I think that is absolutely and totally okay. I don't believe in a quick rush to reconciliation. I don't believe in this, you know, I, I almost was upset uh, when days after Dylan Roof shot up Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston that the family was like, we forgive you. But, but, but I, I wasn't upset because it's the family. If that, if, if that is the decision that they make, it's their decision to make. Um, but I don't believe in these quick, I think it's okay for you to struggle with this notion of forgiveness because I think it is an ongoing process. It is not something that you 
I, I speak from personal experience, from traumas that I've experienced myself, from things as far back as childhood, I'm still in the process of forgiving. I have not come, I have not arrived at forgiveness. I work at it every single day. And so it's okay for me to look at somebody and say, I have not, I haven't reached that yet. I don't forgive you yet. I'm still healing. I'm still hurt. I see you. I hear you. I acknowledge your progress. I acknowledge that, that, that you're trying to be transformed, but I'm not there yet. Right. And I think um, I, I'm grateful for the way you just articulated that, Sam, because I think that there's a difference between cancel culture and saying, I cannot engage with you right now. Like, I love The Cosby Show. There's a chance in hell that I'm going to watch it ever again. That's not cancel culture. That is something that is triggering to me um, with all of the stuff that I have in, in my life. So I think that cancel culture is something that's thrown around as, well, you're not allowed to step away when you need to step away. So I think that's the challenge is we have, like, the reality is the American retributive justice system has a goal in mind. And that goal from my vantage point is not restoration. That goal is to administer punishment and to administer punishment inconsistently. But what I will say about the American injustice system is that it has an entire framework. There's an infrastructure to support its approach to justice. There are prisons, there are police forces, there are minimum security prisons, maximum security prisons. There used to be psych wards. Like at the end of the day, there's an entire framework for administering that type of justice. And I think we have to have an approach to justice, a framework of justice, or perhaps frameworks of justice that have all of these pieces in mind. How do we allow folks who aren't ready to forgive, who aren't ready to watch Bill Cosby, to walk away and not be required to prematurely offer forgiveness. But how do we also look at people like me who's like, sometimes I just want to look at little Rudy and say, baby, I just want to see it. Baby. I want to. Oh, baby. You know I love you. No one above you. Sorry, that was my episode. And it's, it's not just that, right? It's not just about the like the excitement of seeing that great episode, which uh, was a great episode, but Bill Cosby was not an island on the show. You understand what I'm saying? There were writers. There were there was there was creative genius by so many black people on this show. Lisa Bonet, Malcolm Jamal Warner, Felicia Rashad, Tempest Bledsoe, Keisha Knight Pullen, Raven Simone. There were so many people whose whose gifts contributed to this era of media. This era of entertainment that gave us, I did not watch the Cosby show for Bill Cosby. It may have bared his name, but he certainly wasn't my favorite character on the show. And his misgivings does not erase the contribution of every other person to this creative art, to this work that does live in our history that a lot of Black people took pride in and should still be able to take pride in because it was not the creation of one person. It may bear his name, but it was not just Bill Cosby's show. And so, uh, you know, when we cut off shows like this, it's not in syndication. Sure, he's not receiving checks, but neither are any of those other people who were really giving their all at that particular time in their careers. And so part of me is kind of like, eh, I, 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 I'm not judging anyone who says I can't watch it. But I, I make my decision a little differently based on what I just said. I don't know if I yet believe that only one form of justice is possible or appropriate. I actually think that a more well-rounded justice 
might allow us to strategically, creatively deploy some of the approaches associated with each of the models. I think a lot of people go straight to finances. So Bill Cosby is still making all this money anytime that this is streamed on YouTube, on Netflix, on Hulu, whatever the site is that's hosting it or is syndicated on a local television network. So what does distributive justice look like then? So if Bill Cosby has caused harm, what does it look like for the courts to place a lien on his uh, income or to tax his income that he generates from these streams and put that money in a pot that's allocated to survivors of sexual assault for them to get the mental health resources that they need. I guess what I'm trying to say is, well, for whatever he does, for whatever he sponsors, how can we utilize the principles of distributive justice to reallocate resources so that he's not profiting off of his corruption? If we think about what's necessary to lead to healing, sometimes actually a distributive justice approach might lead to greater healing for people. Not, Not that you can pay for somebody's healing, but you can still allocate those resources differently. And I think that would actually give me some peace because one of the streaming services is going to pick this back up. It's probably going to be Amazon because Amazon gets anything that nobody else wants. And if there was a little banner that came up on my screen that said every single time you stream this, 40% of our profits are going to go to this location or to this entity or to this body. I think you just said something right there because based on our system, I think it's highly unlikely that there will ever be based on our um, intellectual property rights laws and a number of things like that, it's very highly unlikely that there will ever be legislation that says we're going to take Bill Cosby's earnings or any of, you know, all, all of that, and he can never have access to that again. But what type of precedent does it set for a network to say, yeah, we're going to cover this. However, in us making a decision to stream this or to allow this to be on our network, we're going to take whatever, like you say, whatever the proceedings are that are being paid to the Cosby estate, because this is his intellectual property, we're going to take that same amount and we're going to pay it to. And so I'm, for me, I'm trying to work with it. I'm, I'm not just trying to dream of some ideal world that I know is never going to happen within the framework of our legal system. But I'm trying to say, what does it look like for these networks, these folks to use their own agency to say, no, 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 if we show this, this is what we're going to do in showing this. But see, there are options there still, Sam, and I I, I hear what you're saying, and I think I, depending on the day and the issue, I either imagine outside of the box or inside of the box. I, I think that America's goal, racism's goal, white supremacy's goal is to, like, stifle our imaginations. And so oftentimes I'll go to what seems like an illogical conclusion and try to work backwards for how to make that happen. So what would it take for us to say that if and when you do some shitty stuff, we can garnish your chick? What would it look like for agencies to have in their contracts, here's how we're going to treat your compensation so that there's already a legal protection to achieve that goal if and when somebody is me too I mean, I think some of that is possible within our framework If any of this was actually related to the production of The Cosby Show, I think it would make sense that they would say, you know, any proceedings from us streaming this, you know what I'm saying? But if this is someone's intellectual property that's not related to the actual misgivings, crimes, things that they did, then I think it's less likely that our criminal justice system is going to say, oh, we're going to put a lien on all of these things that we can't prove are related to these other things. See, I'm going to call bullshit because the criminal justice system has just proven that it can do whatever the fuck it wants to do. And it will do whatever it wants to do. Actually, it didn't. Well, you're right. It, it, it corrected itself. But at least for two, at least for, for three, three years, years, it proved that it could right, do what right, it wanted right, to right, do. Right, right. And so even if it, so let's say that we found a technicality and we did this for three years. That's still a lot of money from streaming this shit on Netflix. 
And I guess I'm also saying you can link it to the show if you make the if if you if you're intentional about it. You can talk about the fact that he's a role model. He's being displayed as a role model to society in this show. He's highlighting what fatherhood should be in this show. We can link all this back to him if we want to. We don't don't imagine. My brother, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm saying as it stands right now, in the event that we do have all that proof, I'm with you 100%. I'm saying in the event that it can never be linked back to him, none none of this happens, what then does it look like for these networks? Like you say, you want to watch Rudy say, baby. So what does it look like for these people who make these decisions to then say, if we are going to take it and air it and stream it and allow it to be accessed by these folks, knowing that Cosby was never exonerated for these crimes that he was accused of by all of these women, then what's our role? Do we have any agency in saying, uh, because this might get us some viewers or make us some money, we're going to show it? What's our role in this? And I think that that's, I, I think that's also thinking outside of the box because because most most of these folks, they're, they're not they're not nonprofit organizations. They're 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 picking it up because they want viewers. They want to make money. Right. So also, what what is their accountability in this? Yep, I agree that that's almost the only way to go right now, and it's more likely than anything else. And because they're not for profit businesses, it will take a very courageous um, human to take that on, even though it seems completely logical. What's the guy who was on the Cosby Show? Elvin. Sandra's husband. Elvin. Elvin. So what was Elvin? Elvin's like got a, a regular job. What was he like a barista? See, I know or your spirit. Was... See, I know that you are the pettiest of the petty. And I knew that if we was talking about Bill Cosby, you was going to try to bring up Jeffrey Owens, a.k.a. Elvin, and say something about him working at the Trader Joe's. I already looked it up to remind myself because I knew you was going to be petty and try to bring it up. He was at Trader Joe's, but you know Tyler Perry gave him a job. Correct, but I'm, I'm making a point, so shut, shut up. Uh, well, my point is, for some of these folks, so for some of these, Jeffrey Owens, which was Sandra's husband on the Cosby Show, was actually working at, you said Home Depot, where was he working, Brandon? Trader Joe's, which really ain't a bad job to have, for the record. He was working at a grocery store, and someone recognized him, and you know, it went through this whole thing, and he ended up getting a job from Tyler Perry, which was great. Um, but I think it speaks to the reality that for some folks whose career may have seen some ups and downs throughout the years, some of the residual income that they're receiving from shows like The Cosby Show, shows like A Different World, which was also uh, a Cosby production, these might be checks that's helping them take care of their families, that's helping them keep their lights on. And at that particular time, they weren't witnessed. They they did not know what Cosby was doing or had done. And they were showing up every day, bringing them their full selves. You don't think they all knew? You think they all I knew, Brandon? I, 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 I'm sorry. I think that, You think Elvin knew? I don't, I'm not saying Elvin knew. I'm saying that I am hard-pressed to believe that if you spend that much time with somebody for that length of time, that you don't see some of their stuff come up. I have never been on a production set. I don't know what those dynamics are and the time that they're spending with each other. They talk about it. They, they say that we were like a family. It's, it's, it's folks in actual families that things come out and folks be like, say what? They lying. <laughs> I'm sorry, but they're lying. Literally, they're lying because somebody knew. At least one person knew. At least one person, but not everybody. Like Jan- the- Janet Hubert, a.k.a. Aunt Via from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, came all the way out of nowhere to get on her Instagram to let y'all know. Everybody knew this was happening. 
And I believe in My point is, we can't <laughs> say that everybody on that set knew what was happening. Some people were showing up, bringing them full selves to do their job and to go home because they were showing up as Rudy. They were showing up as a character. I could be wrong. Maybe they did know. But if they didn't know, um, which I, I, I actually don't think everybody knew. I think there may have been one or two folks knew uh, or some people knew. But if, if there were folks who didn't know, then like how... how are they caught in this wheel? Are they crushed by this wheel of, you know, cut it all off, do that type of thing? And so how do we make sure that in our pursuit of a certain type of justice, we aren't crushing people who really showed up at this space in their life, bringing them full selves and their gifts to something that they thought they was contributing to authentically and basically saying, you know, you might need this, but you shouldn't have been on. You should have showed a different show when you was twelve. It's always right in retrospect, right? But but how do you do that? How do you say, well, Rudy, you you just made you made the wrong decision? Because I don't see Keisha Knight on too much stuff these days. She was on Fear Factor or something, which speaks volumes to where her career. I think she may have been on Celebrity Apprentice. She was on one. Of, she was on a couple of Tyler Perry shows as well, if I'm not mistaken. So what are our, so as we come to the close of this episode, what are our invitations for listeners? We've come to the end of an episode where we like to extend invitations to life and life more abundantly. And so what is your invitation, Karen? Oh, I don't know what my invitation is yet. I'll go first if you want me to. Usually I don't try to go first, but I think I have an invitation. I like to think that most things aren't as simple as we want them to be. I really think that um, uh, that, that there are layers to a lot of stuff. And it's... Sometimes so dangerous to paint with broad brushes. And I think my invitation to our listeners is to try to understand the nuances and the complexity of not just, not just people, but situations. And, and that doesn't mean that you give up a, a blanket pass or you pass blanket judgment. It means that you really seek to understand, that you really try to, to, to peel back those layers and figure out the context and understand the nuances. And that means that uh, someone like Cosby can be guilty in this one arena and then be a victim in this other. And that may sound like pain to your ears, um, but when you really start to peel back the layers, you see how it's possible. My invitation is to um, stop throwing around the word justice. Oftentimes when we say justice, we have a very particular vision in mind. And, and, and I'm talking to myself as well. I'm not talking just to everybody else. I'm saying, even for me, I will still sometimes say the word justice and not clarify it. Justice always requires clarification. You always have to define what that means when you say it. It does not do work for you. Figure out exactly what you're trying to say. Do you want someone to be punished? Because punishment may not be justice. Do you want some financial restitution? That's distributive justice. Are you concerned with making sure that processes are followed so that if someone is brought up on charges civilly, they cannot be brought up on criminal charges? That's procedural justice. So I'm saying don't throw the word around. Define it. Clarify what you mean so that we can achieve a shared goal. I think that I've been frustrated recently by white folks primarily who want to talk about justice and they're going to call for justice and preach about justice and just throw the word justice around while everything about their life is injustice. So say what you mean and mean what you say so that we know what you're talking about. My invitation is for us to take this culture of rape, um, this Me Too movement culture that folks are calling it, and realize that something has to change sooner than later. And 
I don't know what to invite us to do. But what I do think we need to do is start talking about what that means and about what the implications are. I think many people have no idea how many folks are affected, and it has to change. My other invitation is believe the women. Believe the women. My reading of this situation is in no way, it it in no way tries to discredit any of the folks who came forward to express what had happened to them at the hands of Cosby. I believe them. I believe them. I just want to nuance that and say, not just believe women, but believe individuals who claim that they have been sexually assaulted. Because sometimes it's also me. Correct. It's non-gender binary folks. Correct. I'm speaking in this context, damn it. <laughs> oh, you get on my nerves. And that brings us to the end of another service here at the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple for All the Saints and Aints. We are grateful to you for once again hanging out with us here on the Holy Shit Pod. Listen, one of the things that we love the most is connecting with you, our listeners. Send an email to holyshit at theolabmedia.com to connect with us, ask a question, submit a discussion topic, or just say hello. As you know, we believe word of mouth is the best way to spread the good news about the Church of Holy Shit. So take five seconds to share this episode with a friend who needs to laugh or that relative who needs to be challenged. And if you're listening in Apple Podcast or any other podcast app that allows you to submit ratings, please leave an honest rating and a review of no less than five stars. That just <laughs> That's just another helpful way to send us feedback and we appreciate it. And if you're feeling generous, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Media and leave us a little love offering in the offering basket. All right, good people. We'll be back next week. We'll be in the same place at the same time. Until then, peace.